Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is David Kidney and I'm your host this week. I'm joined as always by my co-host Michelle Byrne, but this week we have Lynn Boylan, who is a candidate in the by-election for Dublin Bay South on to join us. Normally we go straight to the, the papers, um, to the front pages of the papers, but before we do, because there's a, a couple of articles in the newspapers already uh, about this, we're going to go straight to Lynn and ask her, tell us what's going on on the, the campaign trail. What are the, the key issues that are turning up in the Dublin Bay South by-election um, doorsteps? It's, well, definitely it's housing. I mean, and I'm not just saying that it's the, the, the single biggest issue that's coming up. So whether it's the, the homeless um, rates in the city and, of course, the increase in tents that you see, anybody who's been in Dublin City lately will notice it. Um, to the local authority tenants and they're, you know, we've dealt with a number of cases, people where they are on the list that they're looking, you know, all crammed into one bedroom flats. And then you have the private rental sector. So 50% of the population of Dublin Bay South are actually renters. Um, you know, so that private rental sector being screwed with your, your rent increases, the lack of, I suppose, security in the private rental sector. And then you have, I suppose, those who aspire to own their own home to being completely blocked out of it. And then we can get on to the, uh, the glass bottle site, the pool bag, <laughs> SDZ as well, and the Johnny Ronan group. Um, and that's sort of coming down. So the, the housing is kind of touching on everything. And then obviously there's, there's other issues as well, but it's, it's, it, for the last couple of weeks, it's been housing, housing, housing. Yeah, I'm looking at page eight here of the Irish Times, and it's the article by Harry McGee, and he's he, he has on it, housing, bus lanes and cycleways dominate talk among locals in Dublin Bay South. I mean, it, it, how big are these issues around bus lanes and, 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 and cycleways? Are, are, is that another major issue, or is this just an Irish Times issue that they've just elevated? No, I think there are, there in certain pockets of the constituency, there are, Big issues around the Metrolink. There's big issues around the Bus Connects, and um, obviously the Sandyman Cycle Lane. But I suppose they're they're localised in the sense that those who are directly affected are very vocal about it. Um, bus, it, it, like the number one issue in terms of the national politics, is is just the housing and the frustration of people on housing. But yeah, no, you are getting asked about those issues without a doubt. I found it very interesting and quite brave actually of Fina Gale to come out and say, you know, this is the housing by-election and we're playing on the same turf as Sinn Féin and such. Like, I just thought it was bizarre because like, I feel like they're almost whitewashing this whole issue as if it like wasn't their fault in the first place as to why housing is on the top of the agenda. Like, how do they think that they can provide the solutions to this when they are the problem? Like, surely, um, what, what are people saying to you on the doors when, you know, when they're having that conversation? Oh, no, I, I, without a doubt that people are going like, Fine Gael, are you mad? <laughs> no, I mean, it's a, it's a different, it's a constituency where there are, you know, huge differences when you go from one part of it to another. But uh, I don't think anybody's buying the distraction tactics of Fine Gael that somehow, you know, Sinn Féin objecting to giving sweetheart deals to developers with public land is somehow the cause of the the lack of affordable housing in the city. Do you know I mean when we know there's multiple planning permission granted on sites and developers are sitting on it to keep the price of houses up and drip feeding supply. So I I don't think anybody is buying that narrative. Um, but equally, like Fine Gael said, they wanted to fight the election on housing and they've kind of any of the statements or challenges they've put down for me has been anything but on housing. You know, so it's one thing to say you want it on housing, but then they're trying to distract on every other topic that they can find. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that we, we, we'd have to ask you about it, because it's page eight of the Irish Times, oh, not page five, sorry, of the Irish Times today. Cuff apologises for putting fake polling firm on mock ballot. Uh, now, I know that's the focus of the Irish Times and it is the Green Party's element of it. Um, and I think Sinn Féin do get a mention just right at the end of it. Uh, but but it doesn't really focus on Sinn Féin, whereas the Indo have taken a completely different stance, surprisingly, and they seem to be pursuing Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin only throughout is, this is whole that thing. Surprising. Is that surprising, Dave? Absolutely um, not. But, but like, I mean, what, what is Sinn Féin's take on this uh, fake polling firm thing? Ah, look, it, it's, you know, it, it just needs to stop by all political parties and it, it's kind of amateur hour stuff. Like, I suppose where it came from was, 
you know, it decides whether or not you run two candidates or whether or not your candidate has a chance in the running and how much you invest in an area. And so, I mean, that, it was kind of that market research, but look, it was amateur hour stuff. And I think everybody has to put their hands up and say like, you know, in this day and age, it's not appropriate to be going and pretending you're representing a company. Um, but it was just interesting in how, I suppose it's the Philip Ryan circular fire stories again, where I'm sure people are going, next time you run the story, you have any chance of giving us a heads up to beforehand. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, Philip will be the, the I suppose, what would you call him? The great reformer, <laughs> unintentionally. I, I, it, it is quite funny. Uh, you know, obviously, do you know what's been going through my head actually thinking about this from the end though is I'm almost certain that they did their own polling and found that data and data issues is a major concern for people living in perhaps Dublin based out or something because all of these stories about Sinn Féin tend to be um, sensationalized first of all but second of all it tends to happen right in the run-up to an election or a by-election or whatever so you know I, I do have my own little suspicions that they've they've polled people to find out what the key issues that they're concerned about are and then they go and trawl and try and find some sort of a linkage between Sinn Féin and and people who are concerned about data protection. Yeah I mean and look and people are right to be concerned about their data and I think that's something that we're all I suppose coming to terms with in particularly in the social media and everything being online that your data and look at the hacking like data is valuable um but the way i suppose they covered the polling and again that's not excusing it that this is somehow you know you were collating data it wasn't it's an it's an anonymized poll do you know what i mean and you just want to get a feel for how your party's doing in, in the constituency and to, to hire a private company costs about 10 grand so uh, but they did muddy the waters with that as well do you know what i mean trying to say that somehow oh well sure how would you not remember what house you were at or do you know I mean like the whole point was he brought people in from, from a different area because they're not going to be recognized. Like you're not going to send you know, Joe from down the road to go knocking on the door. Um, so, yeah, like, look, and I'm not belittling the polling, as I said, it was wrong, but um, it, it's just, yeah, they're, they're focusing on data and trying to create something, this sinister type narrative around it because it's us that's doing it and not another party. And then they realized that actually, yeah, that it, all the parties were, were doing it. So, <laughs> Which was brilliant when my own local TD, Alan Farrell, tweeted and said something like, Sinn Féin, not a normal party. <laughs> You're like, well, on this one, every party is doing the exact same thing. I think the Labour Party, to be fair to them, are the only ones that haven't. Mm haven't put that article there but um we'll wait and see i'm sure <laughs> we, we will wait and see. yeah we'll wait and see their their line was you know never knowingly <laughs> yeah <laughs> never yeah. with head office knowledge so which, yeah. which was the green party line until kieran cuff put it in a whatsapp group of green party tds or something green party members I, yeah like, I did it. <laughs> I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that where they've come out with a statement going no we never did that and then or Kieran going, uh, lads, <laughs> just I might have, you know. But and, um, uh, Mark McSharry as well going really hard on, you know, that this is disgraceful. Then calling out his own party, and I know uh, Fianna Fáil said um, in the, in the Times anyway, they said that 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 they stopped in 2017. But Bertie Hearn has since come out and said, actually, I don't know if that's true. And <laughs> um, so I'm sure there's more to come on the story. To be quite honest, but it yeah. it. it, it it strikes me again, and look again, Lynn. You were one, one. I think you were our, our actual first guest on this um, show, and what we wanted to do on the show was uh, be critical, um, constructive, and 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 otherwise of journalists and newspapers and media outlets for their important role in how democracy and and, and society uh, functions. And you know, one of the things you think about, you know, Philip Ryan's original piece is, did he pick up the phone to any of the other parties to just go, you know? you do your due diligence, you, you check to see if this is just a Sinn Féin thing or if it's a wider problem. And of course he didn't. He he decided to hope that nobody would ever ask the question of the other parties that his newspaper might be a little bit more sympathetic towards. But it seems to backfired. Well, I say backfired. It's actually, it's not a backfire because everyone's the better off for knowing about this. And uh, we've gotten to the bottom of it and hopefully it does stop and as you said you know people are concerned about data and all the, the rest of it but it's um, it's just in terms but of the, the journalism it's poor he could have had the scoop of the year you know he could have gone away and waited and done like a big expose on all of the political parties have been carrying out this polling but yeah I suppose he he, he kind of showed his 
his hand a little bit in, in the way he he put it out but equally other like journalists and I'm being forced to defend journalists all the time like you know and that it's a really tough job now it's very precarious it's you know they're under pressure to turn stories over much much quicker but there were a lot of people commenting very quickly on that story who knew for a fact this is happening do you mean and would go to parties to get the information mm. on polling so yeah like you know it's hard to defend sometimes like mm. as i said journalists are an important part of democracy they're there to hold people like myself to account but rightly they need to put their hands up and when they get it wrong or when i suppose even their own maybe unconscious bias is exposed and t- tell us then right moving on how has the campaign been going for you there in, in dublin Bay South? so far so good um like I, i've been out with chris every day i said you'd be sick <laughs> sick of each other by the end of this i talk to chris more than i talk to Owen these days <laughs> but uh no look i mean chris is a, is a really good community activist td do you know what i mean he is known by everybody in the constituency so when you you know when you go into pierce street or st andrew's court or any of the flats like they they know chris and they'd be like chris you know i was on to you there during the week and you know so he he's an on the ground cd which is brilliant so it makes it so much easier to be going canvassing with somebody who you know is well respected but also is very active so so far so good and the response has been really good and there's also this kind of feeling that you're getting from people that like we did vote for change in the election you know and we didn't get that change and that anger is still bubbling even though we've had a pandemic since that it's just you know simmering away underneath that there's that attitude of no the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael came together to block a left government and people understand that and I think that's where they're they're kind of keen to get out but like what we've been saying is you have to like we have to get our like voters to go out so anybody who's not happy with the government you know and whether that's voting for me or one of the other left candidates you have to get out and vote but equally we want to get all of those private renters on the register and they can do it Dublin City Council is one of the few places where you can do it online so it's really simple um but get on the register you know even then if you want to transfer your your vote back at some stage because a lot of people prefer to keep it at home and go home for elections but if you're in Dublin Bay South and you're a private renter this is a referendum on that situation so yeah get yourself registered to asap yeah one, one of the other things i wanted to ask you about i saw somebody kicking back at you on um twitter during the week about data centers and um, you were you were critical about the the water usage i think it was or no it was energy usage yeah and uh, somebody came in and says are you against jobs for facebook and twitter and all those guys here you know as if like a data center which generally employs about 30 people um is a massive employment sector for 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 ireland but yeah it, it just for for our listeners that still think it's the best name for a report that anybody's ever done but when lynn was the rapporteur special rapporteur on water over in the eu she did a, a report on water uh, and they had to call it they always call it after the surname so it's the boiling water report and i just think it's it's fantastic but um yeah in terms of right to water and all the rest of it we can see that there's plans for more charges coming in in the future is that anything that's come up up on the doorstep and of course rings end obviously has the, the water treatment plant is there any issues around any of that yeah so the, the water quality issues has come up um you know and, and the campaign there the sos campaign like they're very modest asks obviously they want the long term investment in in the, the plant to, to go ahead but they're asking for very simple things which is that the testing will happen all year round and not just during the, the bathing season because there are now lots of people not myself i say i i i'm allergic to cold water but a lot of people who like to swim all year round now um so you know so to have that testing but also to have it in real time so that you're not getting the results two days later so people should know and be able to see on some sort of electronic signage that you know it's not it's inadvisable to go in today or you know wait until a different time of the day so yeah so i mean they're they're small asks that they're they're asking for but it is it is a big issue yeah definitely the water quality Right. Well, look, we, we, we'll probably some other issues will come up in, ter- in terms of the constituency in a minute, but we'll move to the newspapers now. Michelle, I don't know what you've been reading or if you want to go through front pages or anything first with us. Yeah, well, I suppose it moves us nicely into when you're talking about data centres and that there's a story in the front page of the, the Weekend Times, the tax rates discourage mobile workers. And in that, actually, they mention Facebook and they mention the, da- the workers and the data centres as if there's loads of them. But anyway, the, the story is that uh, essentially... 
Bradker is saying that Ireland's personal taxes are a major disincentive uh, now uh, when competing for mobile remote workers. So uh, the story kind of talks about how, you know, uh, Radker says, oh, Ireland has attracted investment through smart policy decisions. That's how we've done it. Um, not because we were a tax haven and all of that. And he wants to further talk about taxes, but more personal taxes now and not nothing to do with the companies at all. Um, and he also talks about, uh, I, I was like reading this one. Oh, this lad hasn't a clue. He's talking about living, livable cities. So he says, you know, we need we need to be more attractive as a country for more non-financial ways for more livable cities, such as Good education uh, doesn't mention the fact that we have the highest cost for college education in Europe. We also have some of the highest class sizes if you wanted to bring your children up here as well. Um, like I, I'm just reading this going like, oh, my God. And he says, you know, um, you know, the tax rates are the disincentive, but it's not the fact that remote workers would actually have to work in these small apartments in Dublin, which aren't built for remote working, apart from the fact that they're going to be paying astronomical prices to do that. Um, like, it's just bizarre. What is he talking about when he's talking about livable cities? Like, are we talking about more bins and more public spaces? Because we don't have that either. We don't have a livable city. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. Like, so I, I'd love to see what he means when he talks about, oh, let's make this more of a livable city. But in the meantime, he wants to say he, he's talking about personal tax rates. Again, is it is it just a deterrent to say like, oh, we're not a tax haven and we know what's happening around the conversation around tax the last two weeks. It talks about, you know, bringing it up to the 15 percent in the G7 and how Ireland is going to um, fight that back. So like it's an interesting piece. But yeah, the, the whole uh, thing around mobile workers, like he's managed to talk about everything other than the fact that the houses are they're not built for remote working. We can't afford them. There's a lack of them. And also there's a lot there's not a lot of rights around um, for remote workers as it is. So like. But, you know, it's the tax that's the problem. Let's focus on that. Yeah. Go, on, go ahead, Dave. No, go on. Well, I really wanted to have a rant about this story. <laughs> um, and you'll see why now in a second. So I, just when I read it again, it comes back to this whole thing of questioning journalists and, and journalists having to should be questioning the stuff that he's saying here. Tax rates discourage mobile workers is what he's saying. Right. Um, first of all, the, the, the line you had mentioned out there through smart policy decisions, we've attracted investment. Right. It's not it's through low taxation and through provision of loopholes to avoid paying any taxes whatsoever has attracted a lot of that investment right um our higher personal tax rates are a major disincentive right so what did i do i went onto the eu's website and i found the the comparative rates of income taxes across the eu guess where we are as a percentage of gdp on income tax in all of europe we're the bottom right the lowest in terms of it uh, Malta is the second lowest and Cyprus is the third lowest. That's taxes as a percentage of GDP, right? The next one, tax burden on labour for a single person on an average wage uh, across Europe, right? All of Europe, Malta and, uh, and Cyprus are the only two that are lower than us. Every other country in Europe pays higher taxes than us, right? Then I went to uh, the tax burden on labour for a single person on low wages. Same again. Malta and Cyprus, the only two countries in all of the EU that are below us. And this is where I think it gets really good, right? The tax burden on labour across the OECD, the entire OECD, right? And in this article that Jack Horgan Jones, who's a really good journalist, right? And he should be questioning this stuff. The quote from Facebook that he uses to say employees can relocate full time to France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Poland and Netherlands and the UK. I went through all of the countries. Ireland pays... Irish workers have lower taxes than every single one of those. France, actually, France, French workers, the tax wedge the French workers pay is double, <laughs> double what you pay in Ireland. So France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Poland, Netherlands are all paying higher taxes than us. But Varadkar gets free reign to come onto a newspaper and say, we're disincentivizing uh, remote workers by having too high tax rates uh, here, here in this country, right? The UK is the only one of those countries, the only one that has a lower rate and their tax wedge is 30% and ours is 32%. Uh, Germany's is 49%, France's is 46%. I mean, it's a nonsense story and it's all political agenda there. Um, it's all about making the argument to lower taxes for the high income earners in this country at a time when, you know, we need as much tax as we can get in terms of the housing crisis that we've just talked about. You know, livable cities. How are you going to live in a city if you can't afford to put a, a roof over your head? But anyway, that's my rant on that one over. I don't know, Lynn, if you have any observations. No, I know. I like I'm glad that you're always good for going off and getting all of the stats today. Fair play. But it's it. no, it, 
he does he throws out stuff like that and he gets unchallenged all the time but like Michelle's point around what is a livable city is critical as well so one you're in a weird I suppose we're in a really weird space now where you're kind of sometimes finding yourself on the same page as the SRI and the IMF and everybody when it comes to housing but equally IBEC have said like you have to bring down the cost of housing in the city because it's putting pressure on wages do you know what I mean and wage inflation so like employers are being asked to increase wages because the cost of living is so expensive in the city so like the fact that he gets a free run but even that idea of of livable cities and yet like this is the same party like Varadkar who's minister who the reason why we're having a by-election introduced the co-living you know, and that idea of co-living and hotels all over the city centre, which don't create sustainable, livable communities. Do you know what I mean it's transient populations? And yeah, and like and the stuff around the outdoor summer show that we don't have a livable city. Do you know what I mean? So he throws it out there. But if you actually ask me, what is a livable city, Leo? Do you know what I mean? A livable city is that you can go out and sit and have, you know, whether you're having a drink or not having a drink, go and socialize with your friends in public spaces and not have to worry about where you're going to go to the toilet do you mean or like the fact that you can set down roots in a community do you mean where you're from and not have to move out to the suburbs and then have to face the commute so it's all of these things like yeah he's just he's he accuses the opposition of sound bites he's the ultimate sound bites politician you know but the thing is if if you had have given that sound bite they would have went through uh, and not just you, Lynn, obviously I'm talking about Sinn Féin or even people before profit. And they would have read, the media would have actually scrutinised it and went through it and said, hold on a second, he wants more investment in education and housing, but less taxes. That How does that work? How do you lower taxes, especially on the back of statements last week about the G7 stuff? We're not going to increase corporation tax. We're not going to let any of this impact on us, right? So if you're not going to increase corporation tax and you're going to lower personal taxes then how are you going to pay for the housing and the education and all of the other stuff that's what they would have said had it been an opposition party but because it's leo radker he gets to say what he wants and it gets repeated yeah i mean even sorry michelle go ahead (laughs) no it was just even during the pandemic like when people were arguing well why can't we be like denmark our schools are open and open to schools you're kind of going yeah because we've got bigger class sizes do you know what i mean why do we have to have more draconian lockdowns because we've got a health system that's a shambles i mean and less icu beds than everybody else and why is that? Because we're not investing the necessary money into public services. Do you know what I mean? So it's just, yeah, they get away with that lack of join, joining the dots of why we are in the situation we're in. Um, yeah, sorry, Michelle. <laughs> don't worry, the free market is going to sort it, lads. That, that, that's it. Like, but like you talk about sound, sound bites, but actually this article to me just shows once again that he's just literally a megaphone for big tech. Like this is clearly what exactly what Facebook lobbied him on. And then he repeated ad nauseum and added in a couple of words about livable cities to make it sound like this is a great idea for everyone. Because, you know, that's something that we've been talking about quite a lot, because as you've said, it's we've shown that like Dublin isn't a livable city at the moment. Even in a pandemic, we can't enjoy public spaces one because there isn't enough but two because the, the facilities aren't there yeah i mean i'm going to move on um to the other story on the front page of the irish times if that's all right and you, you can both give us a few comments on this one but it's a the mother and baby homes testimony may be examined by independent expert and of course this comes on the back of, it's not just on the front page it's on page two there's a whole page of different stories in relation to this about how the commission members from the report will not meet with the joint Oireachtas committee. Now, I'll go straight to you, Lynn, first on this, because I thought the Oireachtas had powers to to compel people to go. Did that not change a few years ago? Was there not proposals to enable the, the Oireachtas committees to compel people to attend? Or is that just on finance You're or something? Put me on the spot there, but is that was that not one of the things that we had the referendum on and it was rejected to give the special powers to the Oireachtas committees? I... Possibly, I, I I'm not sure now, but there was there were, definitely we lost one of the, one of the referendums that was voted rejected was around powers for committees, but I don't know whether it was about compelability to it to appear before. Um, but look, I, I mean, the fact that they're they're refusing to do it and they're refusing to do it for the second time, and they've leaked it to the newspaper in advance of even having the courtesy to to write to the the committee, um, just shows the arrogance that's there, and and even the fact that the, you know that they were talking, not just that they were talking at an event, 
that's outside of the Oireachtas have an object, refused to go to the Oireachtas committee, but to do it in a different jurisdiction. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it, it just stinks of such arrogance. Um, and yeah, and that idea that, you know, some voices are, are more worthy than other voices to be listened to. But um, yeah, so I, I don't know on the compatibility, I'm afraid, but. Right. I, I don't know, Michelle, did you want to come in there? Yeah, well, just that they're talking about now, obviously bringing in like an independent expert to examine the report and the testimonies. Like, is that not what this commission was for in the first place? Like, this is bizarre. Like, this whole thing has been horrendous, I'm sure, for all of the survivors as the process goes on. But like the fact that they can avoid going to this committee and being held accountable, I just think like it was commissioned by the government. Yes, it's independent, but the report is going to influence government policy. I I, I find it fascinating that the Oireachtas committees don't have the power to say, well, actually, no, you don't have a choice in this. We have commissioned you and we will be basing our policy off this. And yes, you have, as far as we can see, dismissed all of the testimonies from survivors. Like, how can you make recommendations having not actually examined all? Like, is that was that not the whole body of ask? Like, well, one of the pieces that they were supposed to have done this. And like, then they, you know, they're obviously challenged, like the, the commissioner or the, the people on the commission are obviously saying like, oh yeah, no, we didn't discard a discount. But they also don't say that they they did actually read all of them or anything. I thought that hasn't happened. So like I can't imagine what the survivors are going through at, at this time. Um, and like even some of them are saying, well, like we've we've read the report and actually even what we did put in isn't reflected properly in in the report. So it's very very concerning. But then you know when you talk about this independent um report report uh, expert to come in, like who <laughs> is this independent expert also going to refuse to come before committees? Um, are we going to get through all of the testimonies? How long is that going to take? How long is this going to drag out further? I just say through a human rights lens. Was the report itself not through a human rights human rights lens? Like I don't like I'm not really sure. It, 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 yeah, it, it's 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 an absolute mess anyway. Um, but it does seem that even the the review of this kind of this expert uh, independent expert it does seem that they're only going to examine kind of like common experiences and then like how does that in, uh, independent expert report align with the commission's report and like how do they work together and like which one do you listen to if they're conflicting how like uh, the whole thing is very complicated and I'm, I'm sure we'll find out more during the week as it goes on but it, yeah it, it, it's it's not it's not really um instilling a lot of trust and um you know confidence in me to be honest no, I mean, and they, like, look, I know what the commissioner is saying is that because it's it's a non-adversarial approach where the, the, the confidential committee, so therefore it can't be, you know, people have a right to defend their good name and, and things like that. And that's what they were hanging their hats and saying, well, that's why then, you know, we can't make findings from that. But like, one, that interpretation is being completely disputed by people who are far more expert in, in the law than I am. But equally, like they gave interim reports. So if that was a concern they had that, look, we're doing this confidential committee, but we're not going to be able to really, you know, use the findings of that do you know I mean to make findings for the overall report. Well, then you, why did you not flag it? Jimmy, why did you not say that at the interim going, can we get clarification on what our terms of reference are and what we can do with it? And then the stuff as well, like that they were saying around the, you know, it would take hundreds of hours of research to go and, and to drill into the, the competition committee. They didn't spend their full budget. So again, it's like, well, why did you not do that? Do you know, it's just none of their, their excuses add up. Um, but it's just it's, it's a horrible mess and it, it's just really, really awful for the survivors. You know, now they're, they're going back to the courts. And it's like just everything in this country just means having to fight every single step of the way just to get answers and to get justice. Something about it just stinks to me. Um, the whole the whole process from start to finish. Um, and and I'll, I'll read out two pieces that that that, that really hit home. Uh, but before I get to that bit. You know, the, the, the bit that's quoted here in the Irish Times on page two is that uh, Professor Mary Daly and the chair of the commission, Justice Yvonne Murphy, said the independence of the commission cannot simply be abandoned because its findings are not acceptable to some at a political level. Mm. That that strikes me as beyond arrogant. That, that strikes me as we will not be held accountable or we will not be questioned. Not even that they'll be held accountable. We will not answer any questions about any of this stuff. And the, the reason I read that in the, the run-up to the next bit, because, you know, the, the, the questions around the content of the report that the commission produced. Um, how is it, for example, that the commission could state that women in the institutions, this is what the commission said, uh, were doing the sort of work mm. that, they would, that they would be doing doing at home. Right. 
And one woman in her testimony had said, during the summer months, my job was cutting the lawn with scissors. I did this every day in a line with a group of other women. Now, nobody I know cuts their lawn with a scissors. That's not something that happens accidentally. And how they could just skirt over that. And then you get to the next bit where they say, uh, very little evidence that children were forcibly taking from, taken from their mothers. Um, that was written into the committee when many of the mothers on the committee said that the most their most searing memory of their time in a mother and baby home was that of the screams of women looking through a window through which she could see her child being driven away to a destination unknown. Uh, for many, there had not been a chance to say goodbye. How does a committee or commission overlook all of that evidence and come out with the findings that it did do. So there's something amiss, something not right. And there's a reason. Usually when someone goes to ground and refuses to answer questions, there's a reason for it. Yeah, like it, it says, yeah, the, the line you read there, like the independence of the commission cannot simply be abandoned because its findings not acceptable at a political level. Like the, like the independence here, it's independence of survivors' voices. Like that's truly what this is. Like that's when I hear, hear them see the word independence, that, that's what I, I think. It's independent of actually survivors' voices in the middle of this. And that's what the whole point of this commission was supposed to be, was to give give them something um, so that we can actually properly condone. And I, I, yeah, I just, like words are just, I can't, yeah, I just, it, it, I don't know how long this is going to on for. And I can't imagine, as I said, how the survivors are feeling through all of this. They're the, they were the original victims. And sometimes when it's these things happen, they're, they're made victims all over again, which is the, the, the unfair thing about the whole the whole process and everything. I'll move on to another story here before I go and ask you guys to come in with a story. But it's the, the one this morning. It's not in today's newspapers, obviously, because it broke this morning. But it's the, the horrible news that 480 jobs are now gone in Stobart Air. Um, uh, Stobart Air being obviously the, the the outsourced supplier for Aer Lingus in terms of their, uh, the regional flights around Ireland and the impact that that's then going to have, in particular in places like Donegal, where there's only one sort of airline flying in and out. So there's the connectivity between Donegal and the rest of the country and the rest of the world is severely limited um, as a result of this. But 480 jobs obviously uh, being lost um, at this particular moment in time, aviation jobs it's going to be very difficult for these people to find jobs anywhere else in the economy because their skill set is within a specific industry that's on its knees right now. Um, and I heard Louise O'Reilly talking on the radio this morning about it and saying how, you know, all the supports that were put in place for business, nobody, there was nothing specific to the airline industry, which is, uh, you know, a, a bit traumatic for people. But this again, seeing as we're a, a, a left-based uh, media outlet, I suppose, um, the question has to be raised again about who was it that privatized Aer Lingus? Who was it that that took away all of these routes? Because I, like, I live out by Dublin Airport. I I know the amount of jobs that are dependent and and the quality jobs that used to be in in the in that company, and now you know I'm unsure and I'm sure Forza and IALPA are unsure about what entitlements these workers are going to get because as we've seen with Debenhams, as we've seen with Clearies, as we've seen with Arcadia, as we've seen with Carphone Warehouse they're going to get the basic minimum by the, the looks of it because this is now an insolvent company. They're not going to get whatever collective agreements they might have had. So um, I don't know if you guys have any observations on that or want to move on to another story there. No, I, I think what and Louise was saying to me and I was speaking to her just before I came on the podcast even and just that we can't have another Debenhams situation with these workers like and that legislation to protect workers needs to be enacted so no more like tea and sympathy from the government going in god it's awful but there's nothing we can do that do you know I mean these these cases will keep happening if we don't enact that legislation to protect workers so that was one of the key things but also just the, the very hands-off approach that the minister for transport Damon ryan has taken with the aviation sector um you know, and maybe that is because he's not a big fan of aviation because of, of, of climate. But look, you know, the, the industry was probably the most impacted industry by the pandemic. And you have to engage with the sector. You're the minister responsible. And, you know, from, from what we've heard is like, you know, numerous plans were put forward by the sector and they were all just sat on and, and not acted on. And, um, you know, there was no extra resources put into it. They're refusing to even pilot the antigen testing. So there's, there's all of these things that you're sort of going like, just because you might not like aviation, you're the minister, you wanted the Ministry of Transport. So you have to do your job and you have to engage with this sector um, and particularly 
you know, protect workers. Yeah, I, Michelle, did you want to come in to, with another story there? Yeah, I was just having a look at, um, there's a story here about like cases. I know we always touch on a story about um, cases, but actually I was reading it and it's talking about like obviously the severity of different um, variants coming in. But as I read it, actually, I was thinking about another story that I came across, um, I think it was an RTE yesterday, about Limerick. And I know um, actually Morris Quinnivan um, in, from Sinn Féin and Limerick was talking about this as well. But essentially what's happened is uh, the vaccination centre in Limerick, which has a huge cluster of cases, was is being closed down to facilitate horse race meetings. Like, are, are they actually like this? Like, this is bizarre to me. Like, it's very, very clear. It's like money before public health. And like, I, I'm here reading this article about like the various different variants that are coming in, you know, concerns. Also, Limerick as a concern as a city is but there's been lots of high cases there but on the other side it's like ah sure we'll just forget about that for the weekend the races are on there's money to be made there's bets to be put on um so let's let's just forget about the vaccine center sure you can all go over to cork and tipperary while we're at it like don't be worrying about that so like this is the whole thing oh well don't worry your 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 vaccination appointment isn't going to be cancelled you're just going to have to go to cork or tipperary and nina to to get it on the same day but sure look don't worry the horse racing is more important than the actual public health crisis that we're in um let's just let's just all have a great time at the races like bizarre it, 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 it's mad uh, it reminds me of a chart i did up about four or five years ago uh where the state was in in one of the budgets they were increasing the subsidy to great horse racing and greyhound uh racing in ireland they're, they're the same entity that gets the money right um and at the same time, so it was 80 million. They were getting approximately, I think it was 76 million. And they didn't increase the amount of money that they were given to Erin Rod Aaron and to the bus Aaron and to the, the public transport, which was only 36 million. So they literally valued the horses and greyhounds above people getting to work and, and all the rest of it. But just to stick with that COVID stuff, because again, it's that Paul Cullen uh, article on in the Sunday or the Irish Times on page three, I think it is. Um, and the, it's, it's really talking about the race against this new variant, the Delta variant. Um, and it's saying how the Delta variant is up to 60% more transmissible than the Alpha UK variant, which was more transmissible than the last one, right? But it also increases your risk of hospitalization and reduces vaccine effectiveness, particularly if you only have one dose, right? And, you know, it it talks later on in the article about how um, there's a huge cohort of people in Ireland in their 60s who have only are, are still waiting on their um, second AstraZeneca vaccine. So like, th this isn't this isn't playtime. This is this is very, very serious uh, to be shutting down a vaccination centre when the race is on to get people as va vaccinated as quickly as possible is just so fucking wrong. Um, I don't know, Lynn, if you had any observations you wanted to come in on that one. No, I'd look, it's like Cheltenham all over again, you know, <laughs> back at the start of the pandemic and those images that came out of Cheltenham. It's just there are certain, I suppose, vested interests in this country that seem to get priority and get different treatments than than anybody else. You know what I like? I, I spoke against the increase in the subsidy to the, the greyhound and horse racing at, in the um, in the Shannon at the time you know, and, and that their numbers don't add up. This idea that, you know, we rehome all these greyhounds, you know, it's grand, don't worry about it. There's a retirement home for them. And you're sort of going, there's about 6,000 extra a year and they live for about 14 years. So like that, talk about COVID, that's kind of exponential growth of where are these greyhounds going? You know, who's rehoming them all? So yeah, like, it, yeah, I just, it's just really, really frustrating that certain industries just get treated differently and the stuff about closing a vaccination center to me as you said when we know it's critical to get people vaccinated as soon as possible and especially their second vaccination with this delta variant um yeah it's it's mind-boggling I'll, I'll never forget it was during the last elections and there was a, an education hustings actually and richard boyd barrett made the comparison of you know the government spends more on every horse in this country than it does on a, each student like per horse the government spends more money on horses than it does on your on people's education and that was just i remember every, the room went silent no one knew what to say like it was just such a shocking visualization and here we're seeing it again they actually care more about horse racing than they do about the public health crisis 
and and uh, just because I pointed out to Sean Fleming in a, a debate recently as well, there's a lower VAT rate on trading a greyhound with 4% than there is on incontinence underwear, you know, which is on the luxury race. I didn't realize this, you know, incontinence was a luxury, but there you go. Yeah, if that's on the, the highest rate of VAT, um, which again is, is a condition that more disproportionately impacts on women, but it's, it's cheaper, it's cheaper VAT race to trade your greyhound than it is to uh yeah get yourself some things to just have decency it's absolutely infuriating and another thing that i found infuriating speaking of, of such issues is adrian cummins who some people might know um is a, a spokesperson for the restaurant association of ireland right and today it's not an article in the newspaper but i just because i was annoyed i said i'd look for something else that annoyed me um, and he's tweeted today saying staff shortage, talking about, you know, the staff shortages in the restaurant sector, obviously, for the one in five restaurants, cafes and pubs serving food who can open for outdoor dining, staffing is a serious issue across the board. Why is Ireland paying PUP payments to sectors fully reopened? And why are we paying PUP to those refusing to return to work? So, I mean, I, I, I was outraged by it obviously right so but first of all the, the, it goes against an article that's in the irish times today which has a headline of i've hired more students in the last three weeks than i ever have right and it says that an advertisement was put out there two weeks ago uh, I, I believe it was two weeks ago um uh, to fill 10 general operative positions lifting moving pressing peeling chopping was in the ads uh, loading machines and operating machines so far, we have received 400 CV CVs. So this shortage of um, uh, of staff that the restaurant sector has seen, perhaps, I mean, these jobs that they're talking about here uh, where they've had 400 applicants are from students um, in the fruit picking industry, which is not known for its high wages or decent terms and conditions of employment. So perhaps the restaurant sector needs to have a long, hard look at itself in terms of uh, how it's approaching its employment terms and conditions, because there is no staff shortage. There's a problem around low pay and indecent work. And this is the sector, remember, that didn't want any legislation around workers keeping their own tips. They wanted to pull the tips together so that the managers and owners could decide who got the tips. So, you know, when you're saying about staff shortages, I just find it very rich coming from somebody like Adrian Cummins, who's, you know, all concerned about the amount of money we're spending on PUP. And like, I spoke to someone who is on PUP during the week. It's completely separate sort of an issue, but she's not on POP. Sorry, she's not even entitled to PUP. She caught COVID last March. And she's now suffering with long COVID and can't go to work because she's so exhausted. She's been officially diagnosed with post-COVID syndrome, which is long COVID. And she gets 151 euros, I think it is, per week. Uh, and she's down 200 euros per week as a result of not being able to work as a result of this. But because it's not COVID she's suffering from, she doesn't get the top up on the, the social welfare stuff. Like uh, a very traumatic side time for herself. She was in, uh, she worked for uh, a re major retail employer, as you can imagine. Well, that's probably why I was talking to her. But, you know, hearing people like Adrian Cummins saying that the PUP is too much and social welfare is too much. No, it's not. It's the right amount, probably. And what you need to do if you want to incentivize people into work is provide decent terms and conditions of employment. It's that simple. I don't know if anyone wants to come in on that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually something that Lynn was working on as well around um, kind of like uh, previously, Lynn, I, I know you were chatting about um, legal aid discrimination as well it kind of just reminds me of that what you were saying um you brought your first bill wasn't it um on people being discriminated about trying to get access to free legal aid um if they were on HAP so obviously like the HAP is um money that goes straight to the landlord um you know the person doesn't see that at all who's, who's in receipt of it um but it was being counted as income um, and then because it was in they, they, you know, when they were being reviewed and whether they were eligible for this aid, they were seeing, oh, half is income. So actually you're not eligible for this aid, although they've never seen seen that as an income. It goes straight to the landlord and yet they can't access. And I actually there was a piece I was reading and it was saying how actually this is mo you were you were hearing from people who are being affected by domestic violence cases who needed access to aid for, you know, around their children or maintenance or whatever it was. And yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how, how that went? Yeah, um, to be honest, I couldn't believe it when Cooksey came to me, the, a woman who's, who's 
sort of just said, look, are you aware? She actually posted on my Facebook about Hop. And I was like, no, that can't be right. So I just kind of said to her, just email me the details. And like, I was kind of going, but everybody knows Hop doesn't go to the tenant. It goes direct to the landlord. Um, so when we when we started digging into it, 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 it seems to have been a way of saving what is a deeply underfunded civil legal aid budget. So civil legal aid needs huge reform um but the urgency i suppose of the bill i brought was to address it which is just discriminatory so if you're if you're eligible for hap it means that you're eligible for local authority or social housing and that means then that when you should be giving a, a public house and your uh rent is based on your income and it's so you know it's a basically they reduce your your rent on based on the income if you're in receipt of hap it's exactly the same it's no different but the difference is because we have a housing shortage you are forced basically Fine Gael have outsourced the rental department to uh, the private sector and you're in a private rental property so you don't have the security of a local authority home you're probably paying a top-up because that's allowed now do you mean even though we know it was happening before but now you can pay a top-up because it's market rents and so you're probably financially worse off than somebody in local authority and then when you went to civil legal aid you were saying uh no so i'll give you one example one woman i was dealing with has an income of fourteen thousand euros that's her annual income um and you're allowed to then add in i think eight percent for your rent and then your whatever other sort of income you might have through maintenance or whatever her HAP was worth 17 and a half thousand. So effectively, when she did into civil legal aid, they were saying, no, no, you have an income of uh, 31,000. <laughs> You're going, no, that's just not true. But we found the rationale for it was that in the, the regulations, it says that uh, if you're in receipt of free or partially free board, it's treated as a benefit in kind. And then they were saying, well, the benefit in kind is the HAP. So that's the value of the HAP. Um, so yeah, so like, I, as I said, I couldn't believe it when it was true. And it was particularly impacting on women uh, escaping from domestic violence situations and then who are being, I suppose, re-abused through the court system because we know that's what happens with, you know, survivors of domestic violence. And they were being refused. So they're basically being told, go into the court and defend yourself on child access issues, on maintenance issues, on, on divorce proceedings, separation proceedings. So I brought forward the bill to address that very specific bit about the free and partially free board. And I suppose they knew it was like it was just something that nobody could go in and defend, you know, <laughs> like, how do you defend that and go? Yeah. Right. Um, so they basically told me back in they told, I think, in PQs back in February that it required legislative change. Then uh, then it was around the definition. And then uh, the most recent response I had had was, um, oh, no, it's before the courts. This is getting tested. So we have to wait till the courts finish. I bring a bill and suddenly it needs none of that. The government just wrote to the Civil Legal Aid Board and said, uh, yeah, actually change the regulations and discount HAP. Fixed like that. And that's great. Do you know what I mean? It's, a, it's an achievement in a sense that you, you've managed to actually affect change. But that just meant that all those women and, and men who have been under so much stress for months have you know been put through that stress completely unnecessarily because of some decision making um, that was taken at the cabinet table so yeah so it was a win but a very frustrating win because it didn't have it shouldn't have brought it shouldn't have needed to have a bill to put them under pressure absolutely well done on your work on that yeah, fair play. Um, right. Well, I think we've got a, a we, we've gone through all of the stories there that we had. Um, I don't know, Lynn, if you want to say anything to the uh, to our listeners there in Dublin Bay South about why they should be giving you the number one vote. And look, one of the things myself and yourself talked about a few years ago was the, the lack of left transfers as well. So um, just to be very conscious of that, that there are a number of other candidates out there that 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 probably deserve a more of a transfer uh, than certain other parties. So I don't know if you've got anything to wrap us up with before I, I, I close off the yeah, show. I suppose the message I'm saying to, to people is uh, like, you know, if you're really unhappy with the government, a by-election is a very different election to a general election. It is type of a referendum on how you feel the government is doing. And I suppose who do you think is probably the strongest position to really wipe the face, the smile off the face of a Fine Gael government. And, you know, and that might mean people who would vote for you, who might not have voted for you before or voted for Sinn Féin before, but that th this is an opportunity to, I suppose, give that very, very strong message that, look, 
the 10 years of Fine Gael in government hasn't delivered on housing. Everything has gotten worse, whether it's homelessness, whether it's the, the cost of rental, whether it's affordable housing, um, you know, and, and then absolutely 100% transfer left all the way down the ballot sheet. And equally, if you're, you know, if you're giving your number one to a different candidate, please transfer left um, down and, and consider giving me, me a high preference. But yeah, don't do not. We need better left unity and you need to put aside whatever differences we have on the left because we always have differences because that's the left. But, uh, you know, we need to learn the tactics of the right. They, <laughs> they come together to protect their interests. So absolutely um, transfer to the other left candidates on the ballot. Cheese. Great. Listen, thanks, Lynn. Um, I'll just again emphasize the fact that you know it's not just you know when it comes to elections and these by-elections. Sinn Fein, correct me if I'm wrong though, actually. Um, Sinn Fein have 37 TDs at the moment, so Fianna Fáil have 38, I believe. So they Fianna Fáil only have one extra as a result of the Ciancorla getting re-elected. So you were equal in terms of seats. This would make you technically the largest party in the doll obviously still be in opposition, but it would make a, a very strong statement if you were to win. But the favourite candidate, just for our listeners, because this is a, a sort of a, a workers' rights, trade union, uh, sympathetic sort of show, um, you, by voting for that other candidate, James Gagan, uh, you'd be supporting for Adker's call to ban, or to, 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 not to ban, but to not allow a directive on a minimum wage to enter into Ireland. Bradker wrote a number of months ago uh, about seeking it to be a, what, what was the term he wanted to use? A recommendation as opposed to a directive so that employers in Ireland could avoid paying decent terms and conditions. So again, I just wanted to get that in because I, I just, it's not just about voting for left candidates, it's about not voting for the other arseholes. Um, so listen, this has been the week at work. I want to thank Lynn Boylan for joining us on the show this week in, in a, I'm sure, a really busy time for her with the canvassing and all the rest of it. I want to thank my co-host, Michelle Bourne, as well. Uh, the Week of Work is part of Left Block. We're a political education and a, an alternative media project that we're trying to keep going here. So if you have a few quid to spare and want to support us, you can do it on patreon.com forward slash left block. That's uh, block with no K at the end of it. But listen, thanks again, Lynn. Thanks, Michelle. Thank uh, and thanks to you, to, to the listeners, for, for joining us again. And we'll talk to you soon. 